You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Pee-wee Gaskins murdered eight people between 1970 and 1975, whom he then buried near Prospect, South Carolina. By 1976, it was time for Pee-wee to face the consequences of his brutal actions. He had been arrested and charged with murder, and prosecutors wanted the death penalty. I mean, if you're going to have a death penalty, if Pee-wee Gaskins doesn't get put to death, who should? He was one of those people, Pee Wee would say, he did not deserve to live. I felt a great need to try to tell the whole story. Eight people found buried all at the hands of this little short guy, Pee Wee. He said, I was the last person to see her alive. And I gasped. From iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures, this is Pee Wee Gaskins Was Not My Friend. I'm Jeff Keating. Police and prosecutors were convinced he had been involved in killing eight friends, family members, and associates over six years. But convicting Pee-wee Gaskins and sentencing him to the electric chair would prove more difficult than they would imagine. Eight bodies. Eight victims. And eight chances to get convictions. They would start with the strongest case. The murder of Dennis Bellamy. Here's Jim Beatty to remind us of how it went down. Dennis Bellamy was the first person that he was tried for killing. First of all, he was the older brother of two other of Pee-wee's victims, Diane Bellamy Neely and John Henry Knight. He bullied Walter Neely, beat him up, put him in the hospital several times, and he was one of those people that Pee-wee would quickly say he did not deserve to live. He was a evil person, and Pee-wee was judge and jury on Dennis Bellamy. Right there in his yard, he pistol-whipped Dennis Bellamy. He was a fierce enemy of Dennis Bellamy. The pistol-whipping occurred when Dennis showed up drunk and caused a scene cussing and groping women at one of Pee-wee's popular weekend cookouts. Before then, Walter, Dennis, Pee-wee, and Johnny Knight were all part of a theft ring. Walter thought he hit it big in early 1975 after stealing a collection of close to 20 valuable Browning and Frankie shotguns. Local pawn shops knew better than to buy these obviously stolen rare guns. So instead, 
Walter and Dennis struck a deal with Pee-wee, who served as their banker. Dennis was going to give Walter a Ford Falcon that Walter was eager to drive. Pee-wee would sell the guns, pay Dennis for the Ford Falcon, take a fee for the transaction, and return the rest to Walter. Everybody agreed on the deal, but had to wait because selling stolen guns was risky. Pee-wee was patient and waited for the right time to sell. Unfortunately, Dennis had little patience, especially when he was owed money from Pee-wee Gaskins. After a bit of drinking one night, Dennis declared it was time to get those guns back from Pee-wee, and he demanded Walter and Johnny go with him. The night that Dennis Bellamy was killed was a rainy night, I believe, in the fall, and Dennis and Walter Neely and younger brother John Henry Knight were all in North Charleston. They met at the pool room, and Dennis announces, we're going to prospect. I'm going to get the money for those guns that I gave to you, Walter, that Pee-wee was going to sell. I'm going to have the money or the guns tonight. And, of course, Dennis Bellamy was drinking heavily, and they got in the old pickup truck, and they drove to Prospect. And it was a visit to the Gaskins compound. He made Dennis take his boots off before he came in the house because it was muddy and raining. And he came in, and they had words. And Peter says, okay, that's no problem. We'll go get the guns. And John Henry Knight... And Walter Neely remained in the trailer watching Johnny Carson on TV and Dennis and Pee-wee go down in the dark to look at the stash of mostly rifles, brand new rifles, which of course had long been sold and Pee-wee didn't have them and he didn't have any money for Dennis and Bellamy. And it was there, not far from the huge oak tree. He shot him in the back of the head with a pistol. minutes later. He takes Walter and John Henry Knight back down to the area where Dennis had been killed. He says, let's go. Dennis is waiting on us. We're going to go back and get the guns. And they head back. And Pee Wee stops under a huge oak tree. And he says to John Henry, take this flashlight, put it on that big bottom limb of this oak, He said, wouldn't that be a perfect place for us to pull engines and rehaul engines in stolen cars, of course. And John Henry Knight said, oh, that would be a great place. That that limb will hold any engine. And pow. That was the end of John Henry Knight. Johnny Knight was murdered at the same place as his older brother. Both shot in the back of the head. Dennis was killed because he wanted the money he was owed and because Pee-wee hated him. But why John Henry Knight? Pee-wee killed him because he was present. That's why Johnny was killed. And what did Pee-wee say to his good friend Walter? Dig me a hole. That murder was probably the tipping point for Walter Neely. Just one month later, he cracked under pressure and took police to that hole. It was the first of four shallow graves they would unearth over the next week. Here's SLED investigator Ira Parnell, who was the firearm forensic expert charged with tying the weapon used to the murders. The first two we found were the last two that he buried. The only people who I could associate with anything Pee-wee had with him, in other words, either the handgun or the rifle, was uh, the last two boys. Both of them shot in the head with the thirty-two pistol that he had with him. And interestingly enough, it was a little Beretta thirty-two semi-automatic pistol that Pee-wee had taken a, <clears throat> an electric pencil and <laughs> written his name on the side of the gun. That's a signature almost. It was plain as day that that was obviously his gun because, you know, why else would you put his name on it? 
This was the same gun Pee-wee had with him when he was arrested while taking a taxi cab to catch a bus bound for Tupelo, Mississippi. So when we got the bodies, what was left of them, and got them exhumed, I flew down to Charleston on a sled plane and picked up bullets. It brought them back to Columbia and test-fired the gun that we had from Pee-wee. was able to say that those bullets came out of those boys' heads were both fired by that particular pistol. And that was really some of the only physical evidence that we had because a lot of them were stabbed. And the others really undetermined because they were deteriorated so badly until there was not much left to look at. No bullet fragments or anything left in any rest of them. It was a complex and interesting case for sure. In 1975, there were no sophisticated computer databases or DNA testing for cases like this. The only hard evidence that directly tied Pee Wee Gaskins to any of the eight victims was these bullets. This made it easy which case the prosecutors would pursue first. On May 17, 1976, 12th Circuit solicitor Ken Summerford charged Donald Henry Gaskins for the murder of Dennis Bellamy, and Summerford sought the electric chair as punishment for the heinous crime. This is Dudley Salibi, the assistant solicitor who worked with Ken Summerford to present the case against Pee-wee. Well, it was as much public interest as you could find. Eight people found buried and more suspected killed but not found, all at the hands of this little short guy, Pee-wee. The evidence we were able to present in court started with Pee-wee himself and his family. There was substantiated rumor that Pee-wee had bragged about his graveyard in his part of the woods. He had no witnesses other than himself that I recall. He had to combat the fact that we had his own family connecting him with the boys, his history of having the graveyard, the ballistics, tools for digging graves found in his possession. During the trial, prosecutors presented solid evidence. They showed the jury a pair of muddy shoes belonging to Dennis Bellamy, found in Pee-wee's trailer. Bellamy was buried shoeless that rainy night. Five witnesses said they last saw the brothers together on the evening of the murder, and one said Walter Neely was with them. Mrs. Ethel Knight, mother of the two victims, Dennis and Johnny, broke down in tears when asked to identify the bloodied shirt that belonged to Dennis. Ira Parnell testified that ballistics matched the bullets that killed Dennis Bellamy to Pee-wee's handgun, two in the head and one in the heart. Shirley Ann Gaskins testified against her father. Shirley Ann lived in Prospect with her husband, Howard Evans, just across the road from Pee-wee's Prospect home. He had a house trailer very close to his daughter's house trailer. And then there was a third house trailer that Pee-wee let some of his younger girlfriends use. Pee-wee lived in North Charleston most of the time, but his prospect home and its dozen acres or so is where he stored stolen goods and where he killed and buried many of his victims. When his daughter took the stand, she placed him at the scene of the crime at the time of the murder. When asked about the murder weapon, the gun etched with Pee-wee on the side, she said, quote, that was his baby, end quote. Here's Dudley Salibi describing as Pee-wee was called to testify. So he took the stand in a very cool and collected manner, had a, a response, a seemingly logical answer to everything that implicated him. And uh, yet during the testimony, uh, one of the most telling memories of the trial was when uh, there was a pause, he reached in his pocket and pulled out what appeared to be notes, uh, as if during his time awaiting trial in jail, uh, he had come up with what would be the most plausible explanation other than his guilt. Pee-wee denied everything and tried to pin the blame on Walter Neely, but the Florence County jury didn't buy it. 
it took them just 47 minutes to return a verdict of premeditated murder. The verdict came with an automatic death sentence and an automatic appeal to the state Supreme Court. A few years later, Pee-wee confided to Jim. He said, yes, I killed him. And he said, I'd shoot him every day if I had the opportunity. And when he told me this, he was rigid, looked right through you when he said this. And it was really frightening to hear him say those words. But he regretted very much that Johnny Knight had to die. He didn't say sad. He just said it was a shame Johnny had to die. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. In June 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the death penalty was illegal without new specific standards. They ruled that the death penalty violated the Constitution's Eighth Amendment, which safeguarded against cruel and unusual punishment. Hal Boykin delivered this report on the day of the ruling. Public opinion may be sharply divided on this issue, as indicated by the Supreme Court's 5-4 to four split decision. Some people are likely to say that the decision came too late, while others will say it is still too soon. Hal Boykin, Channel 10 News. The Supreme Court ruled that the death penalty was illegal without new specific standards on June 29, 1972, in the case Furman v. Georgia. In this argument from the case, Justice Potter Stewart asked attorney Anthony Amsterdam a question. I just want to be sure that I understand your ultimate argument. 
is it is it this that even even assuming that retribution is a is a permissible ingredient of punishment, even assuming that rational people could conclude that the death sentence is the maximum deterrent with the minimum unnecessary cruelty, death in the electric chair. Even assuming we're dealing with somebody who is not capable of being rehabilitated, an incorrigible person, you say it is still violated the Eighth Amendment. That is correct, Your Honor. Following the Furman case, in order to reinstate the death penalty, states added new requirements to satisfy the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. This would prove hard to do. For our story, this would mean the death sentence for Gaskins would have to be put on hold. So just in time for Independence Day, on July 2, 1974, South Carolina lawmakers passed a law that made the death sentence mandatory in most cases. As it turns out, Pee Wee Gaskins got arrested and convicted of killing Dennis Bellamy in 1976. His trial was based on that same Independence Day law, and he was automatically sentenced to death by electric chair. But this law had one major flaw. It declared the death penalty was mandatory. The state Supreme Court would soon rule, you can't do that. To meet the requirements of the U.S. Supreme Court, some discretion must be left to the judge and jury, and the trial itself has to be separated from the sentencing phase, known as a bifurcated trial. So the determined lawmakers passed another law, and the state Supreme Court ruled it was good. The death sentence was back. However, they also said that the case against Pee Wee Gaskins was subject to the law in the books at the time he was convicted. In other words, the court said you can't just go pass a new law and impose it on a guy already convicted under an old law. That old law was legal, except for the death penalty part. So while his conviction was good, his death sentence was not. The court ruled there would be no do-over. Pee Wee Gaskins would not die. Instead, he would get a life sentence for killing Dennis Bellamy. Here's attorney Dick Harputlian to explain. I tried my first death penalty case in the fall of 1976. And in South Carolina at that time, every murder trial or person charged with murder faced the death penalty unless the jury recommended mercy. I prosecuted a guy named Thomas Earl Rogers, who was a soldier at Fort Jackson who got angry at a waitress at a huddle house and shot and killed her. Um, we picked a jury at 11 o'clock on Monday morning. He was sentenced to death on Tuesday afternoon. Um, no bifurcated trial, none of the stuff that we think is routine today. The Rogers case was the case that our Supreme Court used to overturn the death penalty here. And we went to a bifurcated process, guilt or innocence trial, and then a sentencing trial with all kinds of constraints that have been uh, mandated by the United States Supreme Court. Once the Furman versus Georgia process went into effect, I guess I did three death penalty cases prior to Gaskins, and each one of them went on far longer than that. Um, it was very difficult uh, in Richland County here in Columbia to get a death penalty. It always has been. Public sentiment towards capital punishment is constantly changing, in part because the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the Eighth Amendment is controversial and vague. The courts are tasked with determining whether punishment reflects society's shifting attitudes. Over the years, there's been a sharp decline in support of the death penalty. But in 1974, a large portion of South Carolinians still approved it. Following State v. Rogers, there were nine requirements for a death sentence in a capital case. The two most relevant to this case stipulated that a juror could not be excused based on a pre-existing attitude towards capital punishment. And secondly, a capital punishment trial must be separate from its sentencing phase. Here's the lead prosecutor from the case, 
Ken Summerford, discussing those requirements. As I interpret the latest decision, the court stated in that opinion, as I view it, that if the defendant had been given a bifurcated trial, that it would have been constitutional. We still have the death penalty. Although it was declared invalid, it was a procedure that, for the reason that it was declared invalid, as I interpreted the decision. Apparently, he did not understand these new stipulations beforehand. Perhaps this misunderstanding was prompted by moving quickly after the state Supreme Court took away Gaskin's death sentence. Since Gaskins could not be resentenced for the murder of Dennis Bellamy, the state quickly decided to try him for the murder of Johnny Knight. When choosing the jury for the case trial, he did not keep in mind that the same jury would serve in the sentencing trial. So Summerford approved a prospective juror during selection, even though she was on record as opposing the death penalty. This misstep left an open door for Pee Wee's defense to push for a plea deal. And since the prosecution had significantly reduced the odds of winning a death sentence in the case, Summerford needed to bargain. Here's State Attorney Dudley Salibi speaking soon after the plea was announced. There was an interest in providing closure to the families of the victims of the uh, other homicides. And for that reason, he was allowed to enter a plea to those other homicides and receive a sentence of life in prison. The confusion about which jurors would sit in the sentencing phase of the Johnny Knight trial opened the door for a plea deal. Both sides would benefit from a deal where Pee Wee told everything in return for avoiding the chair. But the state needed assurance that Pee Wee would be honest. They also knew from experience he could cheat a lie detector test. Here's Jim Beatty. Pee Wee mentioned to me lie detector test and that he concentrated on wiggling his right big toe. I said, how'd you do it, Pee Wee? He said, oh, you just think about your right big toe. I said, oh, is that how you do it? Yeah. But he beat the lie detector test several times, and he said that was his method. Knowing Pee Wee had never failed a lie detector test, Summerford decided to go a different route. Following the plea agreement, Gaskin's attorneys and the prosecution had a meeting to discuss further terms. It was this meeting when Pee-wee was unintentionally left alone in the sheriff's office with a gun in the desk drawer during a meeting break. After resecuring Calm, the state demanded that Pee-wee undergo sodium amytal to confirm his testimony to the murders. Sodium amytal, the drug commonly known as truth serum, is a barbiturate once thought to make people unable to censor themselves. The belief was that those administered the drug would be unable to lie. In 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that confessions produced by true serums were unconstitutional and therefore inadmissible. Over the years, experts have generally agreed that these types of serums are not reliable for lie detection. But since Gaskins had already confessed to the murders, there was little reason to suggest coercion. The controversial admission and plea deal's announcement was not received well by everyone outside the courtroom. Here's State Representative Ralph Anderson. The plea bargain arrangement between the solicitor and the attorneys for Donald Wee Gaskins is an incorrect resolution of this particular case. I'm totally dissatisfied and dismayed with this kind of arrangement where a mass murderer who has pled guilty to atrocious and vicious crimes, is now escaping the death penalty. Pee-wee later discovered he may have not needed a plea deal because the state Supreme Court could have ruled the death sentence does not apply to any of the eight people he killed. Here's Dick Harputlian. Pee-wee was always bitter about that because his lawyers convinced him to tell about other murders they didn't know about or, or hadn't pinned on him and plead guilty to those in exchange for a guaranteed life sentence. As a practical matter, Pee Wee probably could not have been prosecuted 
under the new death penalty law for crimes committed prior to that going into effect. Peewee's logic was that his life sentence for murder would potentially make him eligible for parole at some point. He had to know that the plea deal for eight consecutive life sentences would lessen those odds. And there are many of these conversations where he's talking to his wife about bring the kid and I want everybody to see the kid. So when I go for parole, they understand I'm rehabilitated. I mean, just a very cynical approach to using his family to try to get out again. It was not unheard of of people, now not with as many murders as he had, but not unheard of as people to get paroled you know, in 10 or 12 or 14 years. So he was working on that. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indul- your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. As part of his plea deal, Pee Wee Gaskins confessed to murdering the victims found in his burial field. He also confessed to several other murders that were corroborated by investigators. Here's Dudley Salibi, who was on the prosecution team. Once we found the victims, then things started snowballing. They all tied back to a common reference point, and that was Pee Wee Gaskins. Margaret O'Shea, who wrote numerous articles about Pee Wee Gaskins, talks about how the media covered the victims. I have dealt with people who've committed horrible crimes or families of victims from early on. I felt a great need to try to tell the whole story. And I don't know that the whole story in a newspaper setting really never gets told. There's not that much ink on a daily basis in that kind of business. But I always felt there's more to this than that. There's always more to it when dealing with Pee Wee. 
During his confessions, he admitted to killing Peg Cutineau in 1970. Here's Anita Beatty discussing the confounding, painful story of her death. I remember these very, very well. Pee Wee was the source of the information that Jim wrote and autopsy pictures, which I did not look at, and the Peg Cutno story, which is sort of peripheral, but very political. Peg Cutno was 13 when she went missing Friday, December 18, 1970. She was walking to her younger sister's school to have lunch five blocks away from her own school, which had let out for the day. She never reached her sister's school. Peg was the daughter of State Representative James Cutineau and Margaret Poole Cutineau of Sumter. An Associated Press story ran in local newspapers quoting Sumter police who saw no evidence of foul play. Patrols from several local and state authorities participated in the search for the girl. SLED investigator Ira Parnell and his dad, Bert Parnell, Sumter County Sheriff, were on the scene. Helicopters, police on horseback, and bloodhounds also searched for the girl. They scoured a four-square-mile area. The AP story said she was 5'2", weighed 130 pounds, with shoulder-length brown hair and blue eyes. She was wearing a blue blouse, white skirt, and a polka dot sash. The next day, December 19th, Sumter police chief said they were assuming a kidnapping, so the FBI got involved. Investigators detailed a report by a classmate that he had seen the girl on Friday afternoon, approximately 15 minutes after she left her house, in the back seat of a car with a man and a woman in the front seat. The police said they had confidence in his eyewitness account. Her disappearance dominated the news in South Carolina. Local and national wire services wrote numerous articles covering every aspect of the investigation. On December 23rd, a $5,000 reward was offered for her safe return. One week later, on December 30th, 1970, two airmen from nearby Shaw Air Force Base found Peg Cuttenow's body 14 miles away from where she was last seen. The airmen were trail riding in the remote northern portion of Manchester State Forest and found her in a landfill near a motorcycle trail. Pathologists from the South Carolina's Medical University made a preliminary on-site investigation before removing the body from the scene and it was taken to Charleston for a complete autopsy. They soon reported that she had been strangled and her skull had been crushed by a heavy object. Her funeral was held on January 2nd, 1971. More than 500 people attended. Pallbearers included officers from SLED, the Highway Patrol, the Sumter Police, the Governor and Governor-elect of South Carolina, as well as the President of Clemson University, since Peg's maternal grandfather, Robert Poole, was the immediate past president of Clemson. 30 days later, James Cutineau advanced a bill in the South Carolina House of Representatives to mandate fingerprinting all children in the state. Here he is talking to WLTX in South Carolina in 1971. Fingerprinting of children is necessary for their own protection. I might just cite the instance of the uh, fact that my daughter was missing for a period of 12 days. We did not have any idea about who had her or what they were doing to her. And there was a good possibility that she could have never been found where we finally did locate her. Now, had we found a suspect with her latent prints in numbers on his car, we would not have been able to have identified them as her prints since she had no record of fingerprints prior to this. More than 50 days after Peg Kutna was reported missing, a Sumter newspaper called The Item ran a front-page story that provided updates on the case. Police reported more than 30 leads they were working, 
and that they were meeting three times a week with multiple state and local authorities. They polygraphed 24 suspects, not all of whom could have been able to prove their activities on the 18th of December. The article mentions a widely circulated drawing of a suspect that failed to amount to anything, and the $5,000 reward did not increase the number of callers to the tip line, so Sheriff Parnell felt the public was being as helpful as they could. On January 28, 1971, William Pierce robbed a service station in Baxley, Georgia, killed the store owner, and beat her five-year-old granddaughter. He was spotted by an eyewitness leaving the scene and arrested several weeks later. After hours of interrogation, Junior Pierce, as he was known, confessed to that murder and nine others in Georgia and the Carolinas. It was a stunning collection of murders the sheriff heard that day. One admission was to Peg Cutnose killing. Authorities in Georgia opened a trial for his last killing in Baxley in September 1971. They presented eyewitness testimony and belongings of the victims found in Pierce's car and apartment. They got a conviction and life imprisonment, and they lined up the next case. During that trial, he recanted his confession, saying he was forced into them while he was drunk and that his Miranda rights had been violated. Regardless, he was convicted and received another life sentence. He was extradited in 1973 to South Carolina, where he was convicted of killing Peg Cutno. Other trials and convictions followed. The South Carolina Supreme Court supported a lower court decision and rejected Pierce's appeals for a new trial in 1974 based on new testimony from witnesses. One of those witnesses was Carrie Lenore from Horatio, South Carolina. She was the town's postmistress, and she and her husband claimed they saw Cutno two days after Pierce was said to have killed the girl. Lenore was a member of a 12-person group who called themselves the Concerned Citizens of Sumter County, and their main focus was trying to disprove the case against Junior Pierce. They believed he was innocent and worked to find new evidence to get him a new trial. Carrie Lenore was cited in an article in the Charlotte Observer in 1974, saying that Pierce's conviction was, quote, the biggest miscarriage of justice in the Southeast and maybe in the whole United States. My motive for justice is stronger than my motive for sympathy, end quote. She even kept autopsy and other photos displayed in her post office to keep the story alive and so that others could see the travesty she saw. She based her theories on the slow rate of decomposition. She said, quote, It's just common sense. There's no way that body could have lain in those woods for two weeks. End quote. Sled agents visited her post office with a court order for her to hand over all pictures and documents she had about Cutno's death. She refused and later appeared before the judge who issued the order steadfastly refusing to turn over anything. The judge had her arrested, and she spent five days in the Sumter County Correctional Center. She was released, and the South Carolina Supreme Court rendered a reverse and remanded decision that required law enforcement to return to her all evidence taken from Lenore's business. The concerned citizens got reignited again in 1977, as Pee Wee Gaskins claimed from the witness stand in the murder trial for Barnwell Yates that he had in fact killed Peg Cutno. Specifically, Pee Wee claimed he killed the girl as a contract hit for a law enforcement man. Here he is talking about Peg Cutno. Junior Pierce did not kill Peggy Cutnose. They took Junior Pierce and uh, tried him for that and everything. Uh, he just happened to be an unlucky man. The day she left school, Peg was drugged and taken to a cement block house about 10 miles out of the country. Uh, that house was empty as for anyone living in it. I rented it for $10 a month. It was out in the, the east side of Sumter. 
and to keep some of my furniture and other stuff in, I had several cars parked out there, junk cars they were. Pee Wee said he was approached by two men who said they wanted her out of the way, that the girl was still alive at the time. He claimed to have raped her, choked her with the scarf that she was wearing, then dumped her body where it was later found. Pee Wee also claimed that Sheriff Parnell had questioned him about the murder in 1970 and had even administered Pee Wee a lie detector test, which he passed without a problem. In 1980, Pee-wee talked to Jim Beatty about the murder. Pee-wee confessed that he killed Peg Cutneau. Then he retracted that, said that he did not kill Peg Cutneau. In my conversation with him, he said I was the last person to see her alive. And I gasped. I said, Pee-wee, you mean you? He said, I did not bury her alive. I'll never forget that. It gives me chills. He said, I did not bury her alive. They brung her to me. And she died. And I said, who brought her to you? And he said, we don't need to go no further into that, Mr. Jim. This is for your protection. No authorities believed Pee-wee's 1977 confession. Bird Parnell said that Pee-wee's confession was, quote, preposterous. He was a very vindictive man, and he's wanting publicity, end quote. Ira Parnell and Dick Harputlian also recalled the unexpected and unsubstantiated confession. Well, I remember that well. He didn't have nothing to do with that. That was Junior Pierce. All the way. To start with, it wasn't Pee Wee's style. Plus, we had witnesses that saw Junior Pierce at the body dump site. It wasn't nothing to do with Pee Wee. He basically claimed he killed Peg Cutneau to try to exculpate Junior Pierce. Um, always been some debate about that. I mean, look, if you read Pee Wee's book, The Final Truth, you know. There ain't much true in there, based on my independent knowledge of what he talks about. Margaret O'Shea and Holly Gatlin also remember Pee-wee's confession. He swore that he had killed Peggy Cuttenow, the daughter of a state legislator. Junior Pierce was convicted of that. There was confusion and, and discrepancy between the forensic reports and what was found. But he remembered enough about who was where to be both truthful and devious, if that makes sense. I can tell you one thing. He did not kill Peg Cutneau. I know that for a fact. And he was trying to take the rap for Junior Pierce. In the years following the murder in 1970, Carrie Lenore had filled her home with scrapbooks, letters, photos, and petitions that she said all pointed to Pierce's innocence. Others in the area continued to have doubts about the case. One of the jurors, who returned a guilty verdict in the Pierce trial, told reporters in 1977 that, quote, I was never convinced that he was guilty. My opinion hasn't changed since. I should have stayed in there and hung the jury. End quote. With Pee Wee's confession and other lingering doubts about Pierce's conviction, though, Lenore and other concerned citizens demanded an investigation. They actually got a hearing with the Sumter County Grand Jury, who would hear from county residents who had information on grievances. 18 people registered to be heard. Twelve others were subpoenaed, including the Georgia sheriff, who got Junior Pierce's confession and Pee Wee Gaskins himself. The grand jury deliberated for a month after the hearing and ultimately cleared law enforcement of any wrongdoing and decided not to reopen the case. Lenore continued to display evidence of her personal crusade in her business, but Junior Pierce's appeals were denied 
and he was serving 880 years for his murders when he died in prison in the spring of 2020. Pee-wee might not have killed Peg Cutno, but he found a way to be a part of the story. Another story that he was definitely a part of involved his theft ring, a rotating door of women and girls, and this thing called love. Kiwi Gaskins Was Not My Friend is a joint production from iHeartRadio and Doghouse Pictures. Produced and hosted by Jeff Keating. Executive producers are Courtney DeFries and Noel Brown. Written by Jim Roberts, Courtney DeFries, and Terry James. Edit, mix, and sound design by Jeremiah Kulani Prescott. Music composed by Diamond Street Productions, Spencer Garn, and Ian Newberry. Special thanks to Jim and Anita Beatty. Additional thanks to the University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collections and the University of South Carolina. Are you ready to take charge of your health journey? Look no further than Trinity School of Natural Health. With their flexible online programs, you can receive the comprehensive education you need to care for your loved ones or step into the thriving field of natural health. Why choose Trinity? Because their programs offer more than just coursework. You'll interact with experienced instructors, connect with like-minded peers, and even participate in optional live events to hone your skills. If you've ever thought about becoming a certified natural health professional, the CNHP program at Trinity School of Natural Health is the perfect certification course. You'll equip yourself with the knowledge and skills to make a real difference in the lives of others. Turn your passion for natural health into a rewarding career. Visit trinityschool.org today to learn more about the Certified Natural Health Professional Certification Program. Go to trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Trinity School of Natural Health. Transform your life. Transform the world. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart.